Hey, so why don't you guys buckle up and join the ride because we're going to have some fun. Going green. And Abby said, you shouldn't commit illegal acts except perhaps at night and with your parents' permission. Your advice is making less sense than usual. Well, the important thing is family and friendship, honesty, values, and no one got arrested. You see this jerk? This is the same thing. Krapotki was the same jerk, and Bakuni was the same jerk. Not good. Not good, I'm telling you. It was a, he was a very good dancer. He's a moment. George Orwell, who definitely didn't like socialism of any kind, warned us against it. He wrote books that said that totalitarianism is bad and that sticking with old ideas is good. I got news for you. You gotcha. Did you have a population again? I did not know that. I, I, I never thought you'd lose a Stalin debate. I, 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 you never expect to walk into one. Sure. Avoid Marxism. Or telling her you're a Trotskyite. Trotskyist. Only Stalin's called a Trotskyist a Trotskyite. And I'm not a Trotskyist anymore. I'm a Maoist. Relentlessly anti-Trump and relentlessly pro-somebody like Obama. I'm not pro-Obama. I've been a critic of Obama. I'm a critic of the Democratic Party. Because I'm literally a communist. Well, you know how it is. The main thing is to get those juicy likes and subscribes. And we can get some more of that sweet, sweet communist money rolling in. You know how it is, bro. You've got to get the communist dollar. got to make it to the top. Just imagine somebody saying under cannibalism or under slavery or under dictatorship. Well, there's nothing you can do about it. Well, they'd be wrong. There is something you can do about it. You can get beyond these archaic systems and move closer and closer to fulfilling human capacities. And that's what we need to do. Welcome, welcome. This is Back in the Studio Live. This is the Three Lefts Show. I'm your host, Dan Platt. Once again, soloing it. Going solo, going solo. Uh, Han Solo. I'm back with another eco-episode. Ecology, environmentalism, save the planet, save ourselves type of episode. Um, Less debunking, more just environmental news, plus alternatives to the usual ways of thinking about being environmentalist, taking on big industry and other things. I have some of those stories as well. I just saw a headline that the Dakota Access Pipeline has finally been completely canceled, terminated. The company has withdrew. Uh, this was after their border crossing permit was revoked. After many other legal battles, uh, inertia just becomes the law, um, and the Biden administration didn't approve their permit after all of the, you know, leaks, environmental damage, and bad PR of uh, trampling on indigenous rights, what's left of them. So I'm your host, Dan Platt. This is the Leftist Reading Hour, where I read various articles from the left-wing or left-leaning, but particularly talk of theory and strategy. Something I could rant about every episode is that there is a lack of theory in most activist community leader circles without theory, you're left without real solutions or solutions you can actually, things you can actually try. You know, when you're doing a community garden, 
you're doing so under a type of theory that we need to grow our own food or have food that's grown locally. There's a theory behind it, all right? So there's usually a reason. Then there's, so I don't just get tongue-tied. Um, I'll stay away from local politics and whatever. Uh, you can. Uh, I'm going to do an interview on Focus on Albany this week, so you can listen for that, and that will be played on this station. Uh, otherwise, let's get to all the stories I have allowed content. Let's see how much I'll get through. First, let's start with something a little more um, mainstream-oriented, and then I always go then into the more obscure. First, what is big industry doing, fossil fuel industry and whatever? A piece from Common Dreams, published very recently, literally this week. It is called The Big Con Revealed. Report details fossil fuel industry's deceptive net zero strategy. So this is what they're doing now. And now that, you know, you have climate strikes, you have young people activated to some extent against the fossil fuel industry in particular, not so much capitalism as this show and any other leftist will tell you, you got to fight capitalism itself if you're really going to get us to a sustainable economy, because whether it's capital accumulation, profit accumulation, uh, or the way that markets operate there's many different directions to attack and criticize to be critical you know not just not just not just a critical race theory but there's also critical economic theory that also gets swept under the rug and maybe eventually when uh, marxist econ- economics or marx is actually maybe uh, mentioned in a more serious way in high school curriculums not just saying uh marx was actually wrong like marx was a you know important figure but wrong about everything because uh communism bad when he's when when that's reversed to uh communism may be bad or communism or marx had a point then well maybe there'll be some right-wing backlash against um critical economic theory there cultural not won't just be cultural marxism it'll be actual marxism um, but anyway, but they do that a little bit right now. They say, you know, oh, BLM leaders, they're trained Marxists. What does that even mean? So here's a story filed by their staff writer, Brett Wilkins. Uh, big polluters and rich governments should not only reduce emissions to real zero, they must pay reparations for the huge climate debt owed to the global south. That is a quote from this report. A new report published Wednesday by Trio Progressive Efficacy Groups lifts the veil on so-called net-zero climate pledges, which apparently corporate America have been doing of late, and thus good PR. Oh, look at the progress we're making. See, electing Democrats isn't a bad, you know, strategy, which are often touted by corporations and governments as solutions to the climate emergency, but which the paper's authors argue are merely a dangerous form of greenwashing that should be eschewed in favor of a real zero policy based on meaningful near-term commitments to reducing emissions. Not just greenhouse gas emissions, but it really should be any kind of emission, all kinds of pollution, because you can replace greenhouse gas emissions with non-greenhouse gas emissions, any other types of pollution. It's still bad. We want to, the only real way, and this is, so I'm a degrowth guy, and then I'll get into that in the second half, policy and thinking um, from the degrowth page uh, website, but or low-tech uh, website, is, you know, degrowth is simply the policy that the best way to reduce our emissions is to reduce the amount of trash we make or reduce the amount of waste that our system creates. Because maybe you're, maybe you're, I'm not completely aware, you get tax write-offs 
when you throw stuff out. You know, you make stuff to throw it out in some times. Or you make stuff, you don't sell it, it doesn't get reused. Maybe it gets recycled, but recycling itself, complete, not the point. Reduce is the main strategy. So it basically, when, when, when one talks of degrowth, it's not a neoliberal buzzword. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It's, it's saying, it's what I'm saying, that a Green New Deal is like 80% efficiency and investment that reduces and that way, it's not really reduce, uh, investment. It didn't, you don't have to spend money. It's more of a commitment to legislate waste out of our supply streams. Like, for example, a small step is, like, say, in Paris, where it's legislated that all grocery stores, anything they don't sell needs to go to food pantries. None of it goes to the dumpster. Back to the report here. Titled The Big Con, How Big Polluters Are Advancing a Net Zero Climate Agenda to Delay, Deceive, and Deny, DDD, uh, was published by Corporate Accountability. The other was Global Forest Coalition and then Friends of the Earth International. And But it has been endorsed by over 60 other environmental orgs. The paper comes ahead of this November's United Nations Climate Change Conference in Glasgow, Scotland. And amid proliferating pledges from polluting corporations and governments to achieve what they claim is carbon neutrality, increasingly via dubious offsets by some distant data, as often the year 2050 as being their, their finish line of sorts. But as far as the science goes, the deadline is actually in 10 years, not 30. However, the report asserts that instead of offering meaningful real solutions to justly address the crisis they knowingly created and owing up to their responsibility to act, beginning with drastically reducing emissions at the source, right? Not on our end, on the consumer's end, it's on the producer's end. Polluting corporations and governments are advancing net zero plans that require little or nothing in the way of real solutions or real effective emissions cuts. Example, when talking of the waste or the polluting of a government's put in your mind that we're talking about military spending. One of the biggest polluters in the world is the U.S. military, our empire. So being a good environmentalist or caring about the climate, you need to be an anti-imperialist too, to be effective about it. Otherwise, you're just kidding yourself. Furthermore, they see the potential for a net-zero global pathway to provide new business opportunities for them rather than curtailing production and consumption of their polluting products. Yes, we'll just make more stuff. You can't buy your way to less garbage. Going to the report. After decades of inaction, corporations are suddenly racing to pledge to achieve net zero emissions. These include fossil fuel giants like BP, Shell, and Total, tech giants like Microsoft and Apple, retailers like Amazon and Walmart, financiers like AHBC, Bank of America, and BlackRock, airlines like United and Delta, and food, livestock, and meat-producing other agriculture, big agro, uh, like GBS, Nestle, and Cargill. Polluting corporations are in a race to be the loudest and proudest to pledge net-zero emissions by 2050, or some other date in a more distant future. Other recent years, more than 1,500 corporations have made net-zero commitments an acknowledgement applauded by the U.N. Framework for Climate Change. 
Increasingly, the concept of net zero is being misconstrued in political spaces as well as by individual actors to evade action and avoid responsibility. You know, you can make a promise. We're just promising to be net zero, but then I really got to do it. Like the uh, like Verizon promises to bring internet to rural areas uh, when they're paid to do that. We promise we're not going to stiff you. Oh, this equation is simple theory, but deeply flawed in reality. The paper asserts these schemes are being used to mask inaction, voice the burden of emissions cuts and pollution avoidance on historically exploited communities, and bet our collective future through assuring long-term destructive impact on land, forest, ocean, etc. By advancing geoengineering technologies. These technologies are, have a huge risk, do not exist at the scale supposedly needed, and are likely to cause enormous and other types of damage. Irreversible damage. Here are other key findings of the report. Big polluters, including the fossil fuel and aviation industries, lobbied heavily to ensure the passage of a tax credit subsidizing carbon capture and storage. See, we gotta, we gotta pay them out of our pockets to just sequester, just just to cal- do, just to stop polluting a little bit. In 2020, from the U.S. Treasury, Inspector General found that fossil fuel companies improperly claimed a billion of these credits, a billion dollars worth. The International Emissions Trading Association, described by the report's authors as perhaps the largest global lobbyist on markets and offsets, both pillars of polluters' net zero climate plans, have leveraged its considerable push power to push its greenwashing agenda at international climate talks. Major polluters have contributed generously to universities, including MIT, Princeton, Stanford, Imperial College London, in an effort to influence net zero-related research. At Stanford's Global Climate and Energy Project, ExxonMobil retained the right to formally review research before completion and was allowed to place corporate staff members on development teams. They are stacking the deck. This is all to say nothing that net zero is a positive term. That should not be like, if you hear it, depends on who is saying it, of whether you should be skeptical of it. If an ecologist or a socialist like me starts starts talking net zero, I suppose it's self-grandizing to say this, but I think you should have the benefit of the doubt that I'm actually talking about having a sustainable economy, consuming what we produce, producing enough that we need to consume, and that includes luxuries too. But what, what counts as luxury, right? Is it, double, is it a triple-decker yacht, or is it uh, a nice night out? Or is it the ability to have community centers and, and uh, entertainment districts? The best, most proven approach to justly addressing the climate crisis is to significantly reduce emissions. That's reduce, that's degrowth. Well, see, uh, the difference between just saying reduce emissions versus degrowth is to say, like, we need to stop growing our economy and shrink it. Because this is just in terms of the GDP being the amount of economic activity. That means how much produced and how much is thrown away. Uh, so GDP, it's just about accepting that GDP is a bad metric. And any left claiming or anyone who uses it is, is not to be taken seriously. If it's in any, whatever kind of discussion it is, whether it's about immigration or sustainability, GDP is worthless. Worthless. Don't use it. Other metrics exist. To humanist metrics exist to talk about the economy. So degrowth is more just talking of GDP values 
not any other type of value. Because otherwise, I think what some lefties or others want to suggest is that talking about degrowth, also, we need to reverse the growth of social services. We need to reduce the growth of food distribution and things uh, for the poor or to reduce poor poverty. It's a kind of accepting almost a liberal framework that in order to reduce poverty, we need to keep growing the pie. But the pie isn't being distributed. It's not being shared. It's being hoarded. Uh, people around the globe have already made their demands clear, their support says. Meaningful solutions that can be implemented now are already detailed in platforms like the People's Demands for Climate Justice, the Liability Roadmap, the Energy Manifesto, and many other resources that encompass the wisdom of those on the front lines of the climate crisis. Maybe I should read excerpts from them in a future episode. Sherisaw, Climate Justice and Energy Program Coordinator at Friends of the Earth International, and one of the paper's authors, said this report shows that net zero plans from big polluters are nothing more than a big con. The reality is that corporations like Shell have no interest in generally acting to solve the climate crisis by reducing emissions. They instead plan to continue business as usual, but greenwashing their image with tree planting and offsetting schemes that can never, ever make up for digging up the fossil fuel in the first place. Because, see, when corporations talk of net zero, they're saying uh, they're doing the carbon offsetting. We're like, okay, we're going to pollute the same amount, but we're going to plant more trees. Maybe that sounds like it makes sense or it can work, but, you see, you got to kind of stop. It's like saying, well, I can eat a bunch of crap as long as I exercise. But, or if I work out enough. But if you're going to be healthy, you kind of have to cut down on the junk food. Not to com- completely pair, this is not a personal problem. This is a collective issue, as climate change and environmentalism in our economy is a collective thing. So no amount of, I just want to reiterate, I don't have an article about lifestyleism here, but let me just, I've talked, I've done, covered it in other episodes. Lifestyleism, there's no amount of personal habits that need to change that can solve this crisis or do anything don't have the article in front of me but it's a simple report that uh i think it was the economist no no it was a guardian piece of you know during the pandemic you know you had swaths millions hundreds of millions of people using less energy because they were home they weren't commuting they weren't using their car as much they weren't going to the office so energy bills were less there People were just buying less, using less. It was perfect. Everyone was just, it was almost degrowth opportunity. But you see, it was on the consumer side. Global emissions did not go down during the pandemic. Even with all of that oil not being burned, there's still tons of the other, like the base of the economy is using all this energy. It's on the production side, corporate owned side. We must wake up fast to the fact that we are falling for a trick, Shaw added. Zet zero risks obscuring a lack of action until it's too late. To avoid social and planetary collapse, this report states, they must heed the calls of millions of people around the globe to pursue policies that justly, equitably transition our economy off of fossil fuel uh, and advance real solutions that prioritize life now. Simple enough. Next, I guess I'll do this one, which is also a greenwashing story. This one is from White Oak Pastures. This is a blog, a business, a farm, sustainable farm. And the owner of it has written a piece kind of about his position in the marketplace, in the sustainable agriculture marketplace. It is called Will's Wisdom. That's the 
It's him. It's Will's business. Greenwashing is destroying the regenerative farming movement. His name is Will Harris. This was published in 2019, but at the end of the year. 25 years ago, I began slowly transitioning our family farm from the industrial cattle farm that it had become. Today, we pasture-raise cattle, sheep, hogs, poultry, goats, rabbits, honey, eggs, organic veggies, and a lot of other products that the abundance of nature provides when her cycles are functioning properly. So, ecologically. Our farm has always been profitable when I operate it industrially. We had a few lean startup years during the transition, but we soon began getting a fair return for our work. In the last five years, profitability has become elusive, though. The farm has continued to be profitable, but we are certainly not getting the sort of returns that a business owner has the right to expect. Our expenses are under control, we have good equity, we operate efficiently, and we have great employees. But we make a very small profit for the amount of business that we do. Now, I'm not whining here. We love what we do. We're farming. We are secure in our financial position. And he's not a usual capitalist, because it's a family foot. It's a family farm. But I am sad that I am no longer able to promote the financial viability of regenerative, compassionate, and fair farming to others. Now, I believe the risk of transitioning is too great. Why was I able to successfully transition but now warn others to be careful about it? Because the game has changed. Large multinational companies have seen the marketing advantage of making untrue claims on their products. And you are able to do that. Lie on your products. Because the weak USDA labeling rules, these companies can charge more for their commodity products without producing them in a better way. They can add to their price without changing their production practices. So the story has a lot in common with the last one I just read, but it's a smaller scale. I mean, it's the effect of it because it's a family-owned farm instead of non-profit industrial uh, complex groups. Consider this. Industrial meat companies can shop for the cheapest grass-fed beef in the world, usually found in impoverished countries. The cattle, hogs, and poultry can be born, raised, and slaughtered in these foreign countries, and the meat be shipped on containers to the U.S. Then it can be sold in your local grocery store with USDA label that proudly proclaims product of the USA. This is all perfectly legal, by the way. It is hard to fathom, but it is, cannot be disputed. This legal but corrupt practice will halt the transition of farms that would like to follow the path of regenerative, compassionate, and fair farming. See below. Which would be his advocacy for a U.S. Beef Integrity Act. Which is the end of the piece, actually. So basically, it would make this practice actually illegal of getting beef or getting meat from anywhere, but you're still able to say it's product of USY. Well, maybe because it's because it's a U.S. company that packages it. Or if you get the meat elsewhere, but you package it in the U.S., that's what makes it a product of the U.S. It doesn't tell you where the beef actually comes from. It could come from halfway around the world. How's that for waste? Why? Because it's just cheaper that way on the market anyway. And that is kind of why to be a good environmentalist, socialist, it is to be anti-globalist. It doesn't mean you're not international, like, you know, have international solidarity and foreign policy. You don't have to trade to have good relations with people. You just have to not be freaking supremacist of some kind. But global economy is one of the main sources of the waste, especially when it comes to transportation, shipping, 
energy economies, whatever. And speaking of, yeah, supremacy preventing good conversations about environmental or economic policy, here's uh, something from not a partisan source, unless you consider science and certain science narratives to be, you know, have a left-wing bias. It's from Scientific American, one of the ten polls. And it is in a, let's see, I think this still counts as maybe opinion piece. It's not like about a paper or anything like that. It is called, uh, and it was also published in 2019, mid-year. I saved some of these quite a while ago, but haven't had the right episode to fit them in. And it's, it's from the voices section, which is, I guess you could say the opinion section or the perspectives. And it's called the tragedy of the tragedy of the commons. Now, maybe, I don't know how basic this is, but um, usually an argument about having commons economy, socialist economics, is saying that there's a commons, and then there's a tragedy where, it, with markets, you know, if you're going to have a kind of market economy, uh, overlaid it, no matter what, free markets, you can't have a commons because there will be people who abuse it uh, to increase, to maximize their profits. Uh, which is why, you know, usually socialist economics is about taking away the need for profitability. Like, if, if things are, like, just to take, like, a more statist approach, if, if, if things are state-owned, you don't have taxes anymore. You know, there's no taxes in North Korea, <laughs> which is not a solace to many, but but as far as, like, if you just hate government taxes, you know, <laughs> but it's like, of course, it's not the taxes you don't like, it's the fact that there's uh, a democratic institution or some kind of commons institution that manages the economy to some extent. But if it isn't managed at all in any kind of, by any kind of community, whether it's a political entity or, or local council or whatever, you basically end up with the quote-unquote tragedy of the commons. But here's about the writer and the source of the thinking behind it. The man who wrote one of environmentalism's most cited essays was a racist, eugenicist, overall premisist. Plus, his argument is wrong. This is written by a Matt Mildenberger. Starting now, 50 years ago, University of California professor Garrett Hardin penned an influential essay in the journal Science. Hardin saw all humans as selfish herders. We worry that our neighbor's cattle will graze the best grass, so we send more of our cows out to consume that grass first. We take it first before someone else steals our share. This creates a vicious cycle of environmental degradation that Hardin described as the tragedy of the commons. Despite the fact that, whether it's uh, surf economies, village economies, tribal economies, all operated communally. They had commons. The forest was a commons. Grazing land was commons. And somehow they all didn't collapse into degradation. Hmm. Environmental degradation seems to follow civilizations, uh, empires, you know, big states. Hmm. Hmm. Let me think about it. It's hard to overstate Hardin's impact on modern, modern environmentalism. His views are taught across ecology, economics, political science, environmental studies. His essay remains an academic blockbuster with almost... 40,000 citations. It still gets republished in prominent environmental anthologies, you know, collections of work. It's part of the canon. But here are some inconvenient truths. Hardin, 
was a bit of an asshat. Racist, genocist, a nativist, and Islamophobe. Weird how that comes out. There's a link that uh, seems to have a source here. He was listed by the Southern Poverty Law Center as a known white nationalist. His writings and political activism helped inspire an anti-immigrant hatred that spills across America today. I'm not sure I'd phrase it as spilling, but mm, whatever. It affects. And he promoted an idea called lifeboat ethics. Since global resources are finite, Hardin believed the rich should throw poor people overboard to keep their boat above water. And this is the narrative. This is the, the lifeboat ethics are being applied whenever anyone who isn't like left wing already or something or progressive talks about immigration. You know, we shouldn't, we're losing out. There's only so much U.S. wealth. And when immigrants come in, they're using more of it up. Like, but I say like, but they're also contributing to the economy. So, I mean, they're, they're making up for it. Whether or not like immigration is good or not, which I just listened to a pretty good argument. Like, yeah, yeah. Immigration, mass immigration is a product of our empire. We do imperialism overseas which causes people to have to flock here because we have consolidated all the wealth of the world here in America. So if people want jobs, people want work, people want the good life, they have to come to America. So it's almost a kind of a, like, if we if you don't want these others coming around, you kind of have to maybe let go of this, we're all better, we have to be the best, we have to have the biggest economy. Maybe we should, you know, stop the growth a little bit, stop the consolidation, stop the extraction we do overseas. Focus on your local economy. <laughs> to create a just and vibrant climate future, we need to instead cast Hardin and his flawed metaphor overboard instead. People who revisit Hardin's original essay are in for a surprise. Its six pages are filled with fear-mongering. Subheadings proclaim that freedom to breed is intolerable. It opines at length about the benefits if children of impo uh, improvident parents starve to death. A few paragraphs later, Hardin writes, If we love the truth, we must openly deny the, how valid the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is. And on and on. Hardin practically calls for a fascist state to snuff out unwanted gene pools. Kind of reminds me of how, like, you know, the one paper about uh, links of autism to vex, uh, one particular vaccine creates every strand of anti-vax uh, subculture that it was a terrible paper go to h bomber guy's video on this he kind of goes through the paper itself and all the brass tacks of how the uh the side the guy himself the doctors involved with this that are no longer doctors uh they were disbarred because they were bad doctors uh particularly uh he was he wanted to discredit the mmr vaccine so he could sell his own vaccine that would be more expensive interesting to think about that you know every every concern about vaccines comes down to this uh fraud who is a real terrible person similar any bad narrative about environmentalism or politics and managing the economy comes down to this again terrible person who just wants to kill the poor or argues in a rational way that, you know, it's just best for everyone if we just kill the poor. 
or build a wall to keep immigrants out. Hardin was a virulent nativist whose ideas inspired some of today's ugliest anti-immigrant sentiment. We, he believed that only racially homogeneous societies could survive. He was also involved with the Federation of American Immigration Reform, called FAIR, a hate group that now cheers President Trump's policies. Then President Trump. Today, American neo-Nazis cite Hardin's theories to justify their violence. These are not mere words on paper. Hardin lobbied Congress against sending food aid to poor nations because he believed their populations were threatening the Earth's carrying capacity. But not the U.S. that uses uh, 40% more of the resources. Of course, plenty of flawed people have left behind noble ideas. That Hardin's tragedy was advanced as part of a white nationalist project should not automatically condemn its merits. So let's look at them. But the facts are not on Hardin's side. For one, he got the history of the commons wrong. As Susan Cox pointed out, link to her paper, early pastures were well regulated by local institutions. They were not free-for-all grazing sites where people took and took at the expense of everyone else. Some global commons have been similarly sustained through community institutions. This striking finding was the life's work of Eleanor Olmsted, who won the 09 Nobel Prize in Economics, Using the tools of science rather than the tools of hatred, Olmstrom showed the diversity of institutions humans have created to manage our shared environment. Of course, humans can deplete finite resources. This often happens when we lack appropriate institutions to manage them. But let's not credit Hardin for that common insight. Hardin wasn't making an informed scientific case. Instead, he was using concerns about environmental scarcity, you know, the population bomb, to justify types of discrimination, particularly racial. We must reject his pernicious ideas on both scientific and moral grounds. Environmental sustainability cannot exist without environmental justice. Intersectional. Are we really prepared to follow Hardin and say that there is only so many lead pipes we can replace, so many bodies that should be protected from cancer-causing pollutants, only so many children whose futures matter? This is particularly important when we deal with climate change. Despite what Hardin might have said, Climate crisis is not a tragedy of the commons. The culprit is not our individual impulses to consume fossil fuels to ruin all of us. The solution is not to let small islands in Chesapeake Bay or whole countries in the Pacific sink into the past without a seat on our planetary lifeboat. Instead, rejecting Hardin's diagnosis requires us to name the true culprit for the climate crisis we face. 30 years ago, a different future was available. Gradual climate policies could have slowly steered our economy towards a gently declining carbon pollution level. The cost to most Americans would have been imperceivable. Talking about the beginning of the environmental movement in the 70s. Because there's all this energy and activity around passive technologies and solar power, which was all just crushed in the 80s, which we'll probably mention. But the future was stolen from us. It was stolen by powerful carbon-polluting interests who blocked policy reforms at every turn to preserve their short-term profits. They locked each of us into an economy where fossil fuel consumption continues to be a necessity, not a choice. This is what makes attacks on individual behavior so counterproductive. Yes, it's great to drive an electric car if you can afford it, and purchase solar panels if powerful utilities in your state haven't conspired to make it more expensive. But the point is that interest groups have structured the choices available to us today. Individuals don't have the agency to steer our economic ship from the passenger deck. Now the answer is to organize into our own interest groups. 
worker interest groups, environmental interest groups, people's interest groups. <laughs> and they quote, Representative AOC, living in the world. Now let's get that in here. We're left very little time. And it goes into necessity. 50 years on, let's stop the mindless invocation of Hardin. Let's stop saying that we were all to blame because we all overuse shared resources. Let's stop championing policies that privilege environmental protection for some human beings at the expense of others. And let's replace Hardin's flawed metaphor with an inclusive vision for humanity, one based on democratic governance and cooperation. Instead of writing a tragedy, we must offer hope for every single human on Earth. Only then will we will the public rise up to silence the powerful carbon polluters that, well, obfuscate the truth and confuse and and keep us in a, a level of confusion. Okay, I'll, I'll share another example of like one kook who writes something very po- that gets very popular and then influences tons of thinking for like centuries, um, which was a video by an Atoshun, but he makes videos relating to civil war history. Um, he's kind of a civil war reenactor by kind of researching. And he also kind of uh, rips on history channel documentaries and stuff like that. Um, the way history is pre- pre- presented in, if not a both sides fashion, a very biased one. And he shared the story of a Civil War era politician. He was the guy who wrote the first book. Like all the, this was about the theories of Atlantis. Any modern theories of Atlantis that it was like uh, a sunken civilization, or it's off the coast in the Atlantic and it's sunken. It's it's very much tied up with ancient alien stuff because it's basically like all these other civilizations that exist around the world were all descendants of Atlanteans. These indo-europeans and this it has a lot more you know it has a lot of shared uh well it, it's uh one of its progenitors is um nazi archaeology looking for the uh the, the the original ubermensch that went out and spread across the world because obviously all these other indigenous people whether they be in central america africa and and uh, china couldn't possibly build these things these uh these large monuments these city these cities indonesia too they have wonderful monuments there, uh, large Buddhist temples and whatnot. And and he wrote his book while he was at kind of a low point in his life. He was a representative. He was a leader of the populist faction of the Republicans, a populist party that existed before there was a solid labor movement, left-wing socialist movement in America. There was populism. Um, populism didn't really have theory behind and like any kind of populism if it's just populism it doesn't really have good theory it's just like there's rich people and we don't like them because obviously we're being oppressed we're being screwed by corporate power uh and inequality but do we have a theory about inequality and how to solve it or how to do our economy no so you just kind of left with really random policies and um emotional rhetoric and whatever and, th- and that's how like trump trumpism works and whatever and so does like all, all this other stuff about Atlantis. It's kind of said that when, uh, when a revolution fails, uh, when populist movements fail to get traction to change the world because they don't have a theory on how to change anything, except maybe run for office and once we're in power, we'll do things differently. But, oh wait, capitalism, we can't do things differently without changing how things work. Um, you kind of, you, they kind of devolve into fantasy. You know, the new age movement is like this. And 
in the Gilded Age, there was something similar. A, a trend towards fantasy, spiritualism, and, and all this other kooky stuff, which included Atlantis and whatever. Kind of real doomer stuff, because the, the Atlantis narratives at the time were about how it, you have a decadent civilization, which is just so unequal, and the only thing that can really happen is for it to drown. You know, crushed by the oceans or blown up or whatever, just destroyed under its own weight. It's very doomer. And similarly, if there are any Berniecrats listening, surely maybe there's some doomer mindset happening among that set. Between a failed revolution, there's usually a, sometimes it's a, a, a turn to the right or a turn to realism uh, or a turn to doomer uh, logic of like, there's just... We tried electing a Dem Socialist for president. We failed miserably. There's no hope. I uh, I relate this so we don't fall into that trap. We look for, not just looking for positive side of things, but actually making positive side of things. So in the last 10 minutes of this side of the show, I want to cover quickly, uh, in previous episodes, especially when talking about degrowth, I usually set in with the narrative that there is and this is from UN reports and such, uh, and other international research, that there just isn't enough resources to actually transition all of our economy to renewables. You know, to build all the solar panels needed to, you know, cover all the roads and the parking lots. And why don't we put panels here? And why don't we put panels there? And why don't we put panels on our dog and on the cars and, and everywhere? It's like the panels are made of more than just sand. I mean, there are just, there, I mean, there's silicon panels, which are, you know, type of sand, but there's also the technologies, the batteries, the lithium that needs to be mined. It has environmental impacts. It creates its own wastelands in the third world, not in America, but it does create impacts. It poisons people. And is there even enough supply of these resources? Could enough be mined to actually transition all of our energy use? The reports say no. There's not. Or could it all be mined within the 10 years needed to transition our economy? Thus, the, you know, the narrative, the policy that 80% of any Green New Deal is about using less, not about building more capacity. Now, more renewables do need to be built to replace the amount like but we need we don't need to replace 100% of our energy use more like 20 to 30%. So we need to invest in that build out. But we also need to question since this is still resource extraction, still industrial processes is it worth doing that when we could just reduce the amount of energy we use make energy um me mechanically and other types of ways. But here is um, a counterfactual, all right? Well, here's my both sides of what, like, the argument is about. It's not about whether there's climate change or not or do we transition to renewables or not. Of course we do. question to me is how much and, and uh, what kind of Green New Deal is it? Is it just efficiency stuff, which, of course, it will be. Um, but there's still thinking in the narratives and, and, you know, talking about this in a very uninformed way. But here's a site called Carbon Tracker. Now, I don't know who funds them and what kind of outfit they are. Um, I'm, I could look into it, but I'm, you know, take, take things with a grain of salt. I certainly do. 
But this was published literally last, this week uh, from their blog in, about uh, energy transition topic. And it's called Mineral Constraints for Transition Have Been Overstated by the International you know, Bureau on this. So they have a few articles about this, mostly uh, hope, 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 uh, hope posting and uh, what do they call it? Bloomer, Bloomer, instead of Doomer, the Bloomer, uh, that everything can work out, that we, we can, in fact, build out all of our renewable energy needs in the next 10 years or something, which is true if we, have, if we transition to a war economy about it, you know, completely planned, go full socialism, even though they will not talk about it in those ways. But uh, here, here's here's a piece on this particular aspect of the of the minerals, rare earth minerals, many of which come from China or just a few places. Have we spent this trillion securing or stabilizing Afghanistan so it can be mined for the, such uh, minerals? So the IEA's latest piece on minerals critical to the energy transition gives a rather pessimistic spin to what was some very positive data. Looked at from a wider perspective, the note provides another useful source of analytical support for the energy transition. Oh my god, it keeps using IEA without saying what it stands for, because I've forgotten what it stands for. But uh, maybe it's um, International Energy Association or something like that. So they looked into the amount of minerals needed to fuel the energy transition, and pretty quickly worked out that there is no shortage of resources. The world has plenty of lithium, nickel, rare earth metals, and so on. This is what the United States USGS has been saying for a while, and fits with the work done by the Energy Transition Commission on Mineral Availability. This notes, that, uh, for example, that we have 170 times as much lithium reserve as actual annual demand, and that our lithium reserves have increased by 42% over the last eight years as higher prices and the prospect of rising demand have drawn out new investment. Under the IEA's 1.5 degree scenario, we will need about twice the amount of critical minerals by 2040, which is six times as much as the clean energy industry uses, but that is only part of global demand. So the IEA has put forward a series of sensible suggestions, including increasing recycling, investing in new supply, and so on, to ensure that we get it. You know, completely ignoring the damage caused in extraction, so, but whatever. Um, then I might have a little, I'm a little critical of this whole current demand versus like the demand for when, if everything's covered in solar panels, of course, it's going to be magnitudes more demand. And that's what I've talked about in previous episodes. However, their take then turns gloomier as we are warned about how hard this is going to be. Impressive charts show that the average electric vehicle uses 210 kilograms of critical minerals compared to only 35 kilograms for an uh, ICE car. I don't know what an ICE car is. Um, oh, internal combustion engine car. And that in a megawatt of solar generation capacity needs six and a half tons of critical minerals compared to a coal plant, which only needs three. We are then encouraged to think about all the EG, ESG issues don't know what that stands for. Okay, now, now I'm getting a little annoyed with this. I, I, I read this bit, but I um, before a little bit before, brain didn't compute just how many of uh, these jargon 
acronyms they're using without clarifying. This is not for mass consumption. Uh, we are then encouraged to think about all of the issues, environmental issues associated, I'm going to say efficiency issues, I'm going to assume, associated with the surge of mineral usage and to worry about supplier concentration. Well, that's my concern. <laughs> so I share their concern. Share back, stand back a moment, though. This is okay, so let's see what they're arguing here. You can see immediately that the IAA are very selective in their presentation of the data. They look only at the stocks, the assets you need to build a generator or a car, and not the flows, the energy you need to run them. But the flows of energy are two to three orders of magnitude larger than the stocks. And this means that many of their conclusions are more useful for fossil fuel advocates than for policy makers. One way to demonstrate this is to look at the weight of the material that is required for a fossil fuel system. So then they basically go into explaining how it's like, well, if you look at the weight and, the, and thus the you know, transportation uh, of it, it, obviously renewables is much, much better. better. Magnitude's better. Here's some numbers. Over its lifetime of 30 years, a megawatt of solar capacity would generate 40 grand of megawatt hours. So the mineral requirement is about 0.15 kilograms per megawatt hour. Compare that to coal, which then becomes the amount you need is 350 kilograms of coal to generate that same megawatt. Coal generation will need more than 2,000 times more material by weight than solar generation. So if you look at the weight of it, and yeah, if you look at the weight, it's, it's uh, definitely different. Yeah, yeah, so, so I think it's comparing the amount of tonnage you need to like first create it versus like, so it's like, oh, we're comparing the building of a coal plant versus the creation of the panels and the power station. It's, it, it takes less to build the coal plant, but then it takes more material to run the coal plant. Once you have the panels in place, the maintenance is minimal. You definitely don't need to make more, at least not for another 30 years. But let's say the life of a power plant, fossil fuel power plant, is also 30, 40, 50 years. Mm -hmm. So it is a similar story in transport. Compare um, the average car uses a ton of oil a year. 15 tons over its lifetime. Compare that to the 210 kilograms of critical minerals that an EV needs, and the weight of the oil is 71 times higher than the weight of the minerals. You burn an oil only once, but the minerals can and will be recycled many times. I, I feel like that's an assumption to recycle it, because then I, I read, I read in a previous episode how the solar panels can't really be recycled. So you're using these minerals, but then we don't actually have a way of recycling it. I think this, this paper is just assuming that we can recycle it. Yeah, so that's about the that's the gist of it. We shouldn't forget the bigger story. We will need a lot less material, and that means a much smaller environmental impact. Global demand for fossil fuels in 2019 was over 13,000 million tons for fossil fuels. Global demand for critical minerals was 7 million tons uh, last year. Under the IEA's 1.5 degree scenario, demand for critical minerals and renewable sector will rise to 43 million by 2040. And the fossil system requires 300 times more material than a renewable one. The disparity is enormous, and no amount of fancy footwork by apologists for the fossil fuel system should deflect us from the central point that we have the resources to make the energy transition reality and to usher in a new age of growth and prosperity. So I think we're on the same page about this. 
just some concerns of maybe it's just a matter of me being a lefty holding on to this like but we gotta smash capitalism and with that i will leave you um i will do the break though it will be a short one i don't have to play all the bumpers i will play music instead remember that i'm on facebook social media twitter live stream um i will stream on twitch eventually i will stream architecture stuff What has happened to this place? I don't recognize it anymore. It used to be so fun and special. What is life worth living for? The dream is dead. Our land is gone. There's a hole in my heart and I can't go on. There are too many minorities. Minorities. At my water
to work like other folks do. How can I get a job when you're holding down too? Hallelujah, I'm a bum. Hallelujah, I'm a bum again. Hallelujah, give us a hand out to revive us again. Oh, I went to a house and I knocked on the door. The lady said, Strambum, you've been here before. Hallelujah, I'm a bum. Hallelujah, bum again. Hallelujah, give us a hand out to revive us again. Yeah, I went to that house and I asked for some bread. The lady said, Strambum, the baker is dead. Hallelujah, I'm a bum. Hallelujah, bum again. Hallelujah, give us a hand out to revive us again. There I am in Spookaloo, city of magic, city of life. Ensconced upon my front porch in broad daylight, long about noon, my rising time. Drinking something of a potable beverage, playing my guitar. Long after everybody else in the neighborhood has packed up their lunchbox and gone off down to Kaiser Aluminum to put in their shift. This enrages my neighbors. One in particular across the road, little retired banker fella, been known to cannonball his rotundity across the road and stand there and publicly berate me for my sloth and indolence. Why don't you get a job, he says. Some of you heard that, I'll bet. Now me being hit to the Socratic method fires back a question. Why? Why, he says, taken aback, if you had a job, you could make three, four, five dollars an hour. I said, why, pursuing the same tack. Said, hell, you make three, four, five dollars an hour, you could have a savings account, save up some of that money. I said, why? He said, well, you save up enough of that money, young fella. Pretty soon you never have to work another day in your life. I said, hell, that's what I'm doing right now. Oh, I like my boss, he's a good friend of mine. That's why I'm starving out on the bread line. Hallelujah, I'm a bum. Hallelujah, bum again. Hallelujah, give us a hand out to revive us again. Yeah, and I like Jim Hill, he's a good friend of mine. Say, that's why I'm booming down Jim Hill's main line. Hallelujah, I'm a bum. Hallelujah, bum again. Hallelujah, give us a hand out to revive us again. To a bar and I asked for a drink. He gave me a glass and he showed me the sink. Hallelujah, I'm a bum. Hallelujah, bum again. Hallelujah, give us a handout to revive us again. Whenever I get all the money I earn, the boss will be broke and to work he must turn. Hallelujah, I'm a bum. Hallelujah, bum again. Hallelujah, give us a handout to revive us again. And why don't you save all the money you earn? If I didn't eat, I'd have money to burn. Hallelujah, I'm a bum. Hallelujah, bum again. Hallelujah, give us a handout to revive us again. Welcome back to the Three Left Show. That was Utah Phillips with the old labor standard. Hallelujah, I'm a bum. This was written, that was written a century ago, at least. Certainly, probably still, could still possibly resonate with you. Oh, the little, the little stories aside, um, you know, the, the music itself is just, uh, you know, it's a little, it's a modified, uh, church song. And, uh, and that's what a lot of, a lot of labor songs are. Uh, you know, because they're songs everybody already knows and they're just so simple to learn. And that's why everybody in that audience was singing along. 
when you're in labor, you know all the songs because they're just so easy to learn. And that's, and that's you know, we, we, we need easy songs to learn, you know, more than just the hook of some pop song where, you know, you get a little earworm where it's just the hook and none of the other lyrics. <clears throat> but with such a simple melody and simple and short verses, it's easy, it's easy to memorize it. So anyway. Welcome back. The rest of the uh, this episode of Three Lefts, uh, your leftist reading hours, sharing um, strategy and analysis uh, from perspectives of socialism, anarchism, and ecology. I'm doing an ecology episode this time. It's been a while. So the, this hour, I'm going to be returning, if not returning, uh, it's been a long time since I've read the content of Low Tech Magazine, Doubts on Progress and Technology. I really like this site. Because it doesn't eschew technology. It just says, like, we just don't need the high technology provided by big corporations or the technology that will be patented by them or requires large capital stacks to do. This is the kind of technology, this kind of sustainability you could do on a budget, you could do at home, you can do uh, as community projects. So the first will be more of a greenwashing debunk type of thing because he has many articles like that and I've, and I've read certain articles about like the lack of there aren't enough mineral supplies now i i, I just read a, a piece that argued the opposite what's true well maybe it's somewhere in between maybe it's nuanced enough that they could both be right i'd like to take that into account how to get into this this first part is about vertical farming. So this is vertical farming counts to me and others should count as a high tech solution to a problem that is it a really a problem? You know, if we stop the monocultural practices, the fossil fuel based practices of big agro, the mass, the mass farming that occurs, we probably don't need to say like, we well, need more space to grow food. Vertical farming is about urban dwellers trying, thinking about, you know, well, living in a city, any kind of city, requires a footprint, an ecological, natural, land-based footprint. You could say a city of 100,000 requires a 30-mile diameter area of world. And the fact that we use more world than our footprint requires, and that's why reduce, reduce, reduce is the solution, is the answer. Now it's just recycling. In fact, recycling isn't really a part of it. Um, if we reduce enough, then we recycle the rest. So I guess it is part. Of course, it's part of it. But this is an article called "Vertical Farming Does Not Save Space." So it's usually the, the kind of the, the the chill of vertical farming, kind of like solar roads. This isn't really a solution. This isn't like it seems like this intuitive thing that we should be doing. Um, it's so cool too. It has a cool factor. Like, uh, you know, any Musk project. Vertical farms. They're the thing of the future. But are they? Are they? Do they have to be? And does it even solve the problem it purports to? If the electricity for a vertical farm is supplied by solar panels, the energy production takes up at least as much space as a vertical farm saves. That's the subtitle. Urban agriculture in vertical indoor farms is on the rise. Electric lights allow the crops to be grown in layers above each other year-round. Proponents argue that growers can save a lot of agricultural land in this way. Additional advantages 
are that less energy is needed to transport food, most people live in a city, and that less water and pesticides are required. All true. But which crops? The vertical farms that have been commercially active for several years all focus on the same crops. These are agricultural products with a high water content, such as lettuce, tomatoes, cucumbers, peppers, herbs. However, these are not crops that can feed a city. They contain hardly any carbs, proteins, or fats. To feed a city, it takes grains, legumes, root crops, oil crops. These are now grown globally on 16 million square kilometers of farmland, almost the entire size of South America. About growing wheat vertically. An art installation currently presented in Brussels called The Farm, adequate, explores that it would take what it would take to grow wheat in a vertical farm. For the experiment, one square meter of wheat was sown in a completely artificial environment. By measuring the input of raw materials, such as energy and water, the project shows the extent to which natural ecosystems support our food production. When wheat is planted in the ground next to each other, instead of above, the sun provides free energy and the clouds free water. So here's the results of the art project. A loaf of bread for 345 euros. The experiment shows that growing um, a square meter of wheat is an art- in an artificial environment costs twenty-five, almost 2,500 kilowatt hours of electricity, 394 liters of water in a year, uh, the energy required for hardware production, such as the lighting, is not included in these results, so this is an underestimate. The building's energy cost is also not taken into account, and that concerns both the construction of its use, for example, for heating, cooling, and pumping water. should also mention that the picture shown of this project doesn't appear to be a windowed area, though maybe it's just a picture of the wheat. It's not a picture. It's in a very large room. So I can't see if there's skylights. So it's like, this is dark with just using lighting. So obviously, if you have a vertical farm, you've got to have at least one uh, side of the room will be glazing. But it still requires electricity and such. Especially if you're just considering, like, indoor food growing. Yeah, food factories. The cost calculation does not include the price of the equipment, which was about a 1,000 euros, the lifespan of the infrastructure is estimated eight years. Converted the production of the square meter of wheat costs 610 euros per square meter per year. Of this, 412 euros goes to electricity consumption and about one to water. This calculation may be an overestimate because the installation was set up in an exhibition space. So you're not paying for land costs either. The farm produces four harvests per year because it is all year, instead of maybe two. With every harvest, enough wheat is grown to make one loaf of bread, which has then the cost, has the cost of 345 euros. Euros are just slightly uh, more valuable than dollars. Each loaf contains 2,000 kilocalories, the amount that an average person needs per day. As a result, uh, though calories are not, you know, nutrition, as a result, 91 square meters of artificially produced wheat is necessary for each person with a total cost of 125,000 euros per year. Although I would probably like a kind of what is the cost of producing the food that like an average person consumes in a year? Like what's the dollar amount for a contrast? But there is a paradox about vertical farming. 
Artificial lighting saves land because plants can be grown above each other. But if the electricity for the lighting comes from solar panels, then the savings are canceled out by the land required to install them. The vertical farm is a paradox unless fossil fuels provide the energy. In that case, it's not much not much sustainability about it. Calculated at a yield of 175 kilowatt hours per square meter of solar panel per year, the indoor cultivation of this wheat requires 20 square meters of solar panels. This is an underestimate because the calculations were based on an average yield of a solar panel. There is much less sunlight in winter than summer. Duh. In reality, the vertical farm requires many more solar panels to keep operating year-round. There is also a need for so so just just to compare like okay so if we're not going to do this like uh, power consumption heavy vertical farming indoor farming of of crops that would you would normally just grow in season, I would relate that with greenhouse systems which can lower the climate area. Like in, say, New England, you can grow crops that you would in the south uh, through layers of gla- glazing, glass, and, and other types of insulation while retaining the amount of, of passive sunlight. Even though there's less sunlight, of course, during the winter, you can grow certain crops indoors without any energy input, besides maybe a, a little one-kilowatt fan. But you can grow all kinds of leafy vegetables like spinach and, and kale, not kale, but uh, definitely spinach and a few other things indoors in greenhouses year-round. So it's more like you have more seasonal offerings with uh, by going the low-tech or low-energy approach. So is a, is a vertical farm even an innovation? All this criticism also applies to vertical farms where lettuce and tomatoes are grown. In this case, there is a significant reduction in water use. These companies are profitable, but only because the process relies on a supply of cheap fossil fuels. If solar panels supplied the energy, the extra cost and space for the energy supply would again cancel out the savings in terms of space and cost. The only advantage of a vertical farm would be the shorter transport distance. Still, if we could just as well make transport between town and countryside more sustainable. Trains having a regional food system so that the transportation distance is a day instead of weeks uh, on ships. The problem with agriculture is not that it happens in the countryside. The problem is that it relies heavily on fossil fuels. The vertical farm is not the solution since it replaces, once again, the free and renewable energy from the sun with expensive tech. That's LED lamps, computers, concrete buildings, solar panels. Our lifestyle is becoming less and less sustainable, increasingly dependent on raw materials, infrastructure, machines, and fossil energy. Unfortunately, this also applies to almost all tech or technologies that we usually label as sustainable. Now, are there ways of growing tropical uh, foods or, or other kind of things that we associate with shipping from the other side of the world? Well, here's... This bo- this does both things. It's both an answer to the, like, we can have uh, citrus fruits year-round and grow them in any climate, uh, or particularly cold climates. And it's also kind of a, uh, a slapdown for the unique capitalism for innovation. You know, there's no innovation in the Soviet Union, no innovation in socialist states. So here is an article, same, same source, Low Tech Magazine, called Fruit Trenches, Cultivating Subtropical Plants in freezing temperatures. Because, you know, the Soviet Union 
was under something of a blockade, <laughs> especially when all of the tropical fruit producers are mm, under the American boot. <laughs> you know, uh, United Fruit Company owned and whatnot. They're not trading with the Soviet Union. So they needed to get tropical fruit somehow else. They needed to innovate because necessity is a source of innovation. They needed certain fruit. Um, so they were going to find a way of growing it. Citrus fruits, including oranges, lemons, mandarins, tangerines, grapefruit, limes, and pepperolis, are the highest value fruit crop in terms of international trade. Citrus plants are not frost-hardy and can only be grown in tropical and subtropical climates, unless they are cultivated in fossil fuel-heated glasshouses. However, during the first half of the 20th century, however, during the first half of the 20th century, citrus fruits came to be grown a good distance from these regions they usually thrive in. The Russians managed to grow citrus indoor, outdoors, where temperatures drop as low as minus 30 Celsius and without the use of glass or fossil fuels. By 1950, the Soviet Union boasted 30,000 hectares of citrus plantations producing 200,000 tons of fruit a year. How did they do it? Did Stalin do it himself? No. <laughs> no. So, first the expansion of their production. Before the First World War, the total area occupied by citrus plantations in the Russian Empire was estimated at 160 hectares, located almost entirely in the coastal areas of western Georgia. This region enjoys a relatively mild winter climate because of its proximity to the Black Sea and the Caucasus Mountains, which protects it against cold winter winds coming from the Russian plains and western Siberia. Nonetheless, such a climate is far from ideal for citrus production. Although the average winter temperature is above zero, thermal minima may drop to negative 8 to 12. Frost is deadly to citrus plants, even a short blast. For example, at the end of the 19th century, an extensive citrus industry in Florida was almost completely destroyed when the temperature dropped briefly to between minus 3 to 8 degrees Celsius. Not Fahrenheit. So from the 20s onward, after the revolution, the Russians extended the area of citrus cultivation to regions considered even less suited. Initially, citrus production extended westward along the Black Sea coast, a region unprotected by mountains, where temperature can drop to minus 15. This includes Sochi, which was that recently hosted, well, in the last decade, hosted the Winter Olympics. Russia was dependent on importing fruit like this. Before the First World War, almost all citrus fruits in ancient Russia came from abroad. Main suppliers were mostly Sicily, like lemons, and Palestine for oranges. Some 20,000 30,000 tons were imported annually. Its consumption with tea, national drink in Russia, meant lemon made up almost three-quarters of these imports. Gotta have tea with lemon. 1925, following the Russian Revolution Civil War, citrus growing became the subject of planned development. Communist Party was determined to become self-sufficient in citrus production. This is under the socialism in one country theory. And no efforts were spared. They set up several research establishments and nurseries, as well as test fields in more than 50 locations. By 1940, the, the acreage had grown to 17,000 hectares, which had doubled. Let's go into uh, some of the things they were doing, so I'm not taking a whole hour on this. This is a bit longer. First, they did progressive cold hardening. Imported citrus varieties only survived in a few isolated points along the Black Sea coast, which enjoyed a particularly favorable microclimate. 
to better prepare citrus fruits for cold, Soviet citriologists followed a method called progressive cold hardening. It allows them to create new varieties which were adapted to local ecological conditions, cultivation strategy which had originally been developed for apricot trees and grapes. The method consists of planting a seed of a highly valued tree a bit further north of its original location and then waiting for it to give seeds. Those seeds are then planted a bit further north, and with the process repeated further, slowly but steadily pushing the citrus variety towards less hospitable climates. Using this method, apricot trees from Rostov could eventually be grown in about 650 kilometers further north, where they developed apricot seeds that were adapted to the local climate. On the other hand, directly planting the seeds of the Rostov apricot tree in uh, Mishkrushk proved unsuccessful. The method developed following the observation that young plants started from seed adapt to conditions of the new environment also proved successful for citrus, which retained high yields and high-quality fruits. Something else was the dwarf and semi-dwarf citrus tree. So the main citrus growing centers worldwide, pruning, pruning them, are rare. Harold Hoonan, a renowned Canadian-American botanist, even advised to keep pruning shears as far as possible from a citrus plantation. However, pruning was crucial to the cultivation of citrus plants in Russia. First and foremost, pruning reduced the height of the plant. Conventional lemon trees grow 5 meters tall, orange trees 12. On the other hand, even prior to the 1920s, Russians worked with dwarf and semi-dwarf trees, which were only 1 to 2 meters tall. These trees were further pruned to have compact crowns. That means it's like less of a big bush. Very short tree. More compact trees have two advantages. First, they're closer to the ground, so they're less exposed to variable wind and temperature changes. Second, smaller trees are easier to protect against the elements. In the region with the mildest climate, where the initial 160 hectares of citrus were grown, plantations were often located on terraces or on steep slopes, taking up smaller pieces of land of that favorable microclimate. You know, you want that south-facing side of a hill. During winter, individual citrus plants in these plantations were protected by a shelter made of cheesecloth or straw mats supported by a light frame of poles. Plantations were also surrounded by windbreaks, cur- windbreak curtains, arranged in such a way that they mitigated both cold winter. You know, with the right, so just generally speaking, with the right amount of planning and insight, you can do the quote-unquote impossible or do something that like, oh, we've got to build a building and you got to do it indoors with heating and cooling and burning fossil fuels you don't have to if you plan things out properly pay attention to the land there's also the creeping citrus tree which is like a, a tree that they then kind of grafted to like kind of grow out along the ground so they train small citrus plants training them was key to extending their cultivation across regions of the black sea coast where until then it had been impossible this was achieved by pruning and guiding citrus plants into a creeping form which reduced their height to a mere half a foot. The crown of creeping citrus plants was formed in two ways. First method, the trunk of the tree took an inclined position. I don't have to explain all, all the steps. Basically, just they, they like took the branches and they kind of tied them down uh, along the ground. And that trains, the, uh, trains it to kind of grow out like a vines. Logically, the very small size of creeping plants make it easier and cheaper to protect them against the elements. You know, you can build a almost like a window box around them. 
Moreover, as a protection strategy, it proved to be more effective. During the winter of 42 to 43, when temperatures along the Black Sea coast went down to negative 15, creeping lemon trees protected by a double layer of cheesecloth and by windbreaks did not suffer. Perhaps surprisingly, creeping citrus plants had higher yields than semi-dwarfed citrus plants. The fruits ripened earlier, produced more fruit, especially in the first years. Now, here's one of the major things that I kind of like can really see being effective. Growing the trees in trenches. None of the above-mentioned cultivation methods were sufficient to grow citrus fruits in regions where the ground froze and where winter temperatures dropped below negative 15 Celsius, meaning like uh, like 20 degrees Fahrenheit. Here, citrus plants were cultivated in trenches. Obviously, growing fruit trees in trenches was only practical with dwarf and most often creeping plants. In this method, soil heat protects the fruits from frost because it is slightly warmer below ground, uh, as it is also slightly cooler below ground depending on the season. The depth of the trenches varied from 0.8 to 2 meters depending on the winter temperature, the depth to which the ground froze, and the water table. The trees could be planted in a single or double row, Trenches were generally trapezoidal in section to improve light conditions. They were roughly two and a half meters wide at the bottom, three wide at top. You can kind of picture it yourself. So it's a big trench. The trees in there. And then you could cover the trenches where they cover them with. During the summer, plants received the same care as those planted in the ground under ordinary conditions. When winter came, the trenches were covered with a two centimeter thick wooden boards and single or double straw mats. Depending on the climate, this kept the soil heat in the trench while keeping rain out. If a layer of snow, not rain, it would be snow, a layer of snow covering the boards, it was left in place for extra insulation. The boards were sloped at an angle, uh, so any kind of melting would not just go in. And it has num- numerous diagrams, which I should probably save. I was going to once I had read this. So here's one other method. This is the last one. Apart from the trenches, Soviet citriologists use other types of shelters to grow citrus plants, all of which are more effective with smaller-sized trees. Some included usually sparse use of fossil fuels. A first example is the cultivation of citrus trees for annual transplantation. Citrus plants spent the summer outdoors, but as winter approached, they were dug up with a cod of earth surrounding their roots and transported to winter sheds, where they were crammed together for as long as it was freezing outside. In spring, they were moved back to the original location, where the winter was relatively mild. These winter sheds were light wooden buildings that were generally unheated, but in colder regions, they could be made of masonry, half buried, and thus fitting with, fitted with heating stuff. A limonarium is such a building. Uh, citrus plants were also grown in unheated glass houses. These limonaria, located in the Black Sea coast, were semicircular glass houses built around particularly well-exposed hills with terraces. These hills were grown as, especially ours, a method reminiscent of the fruit walls in northern European countries. Heated glass houses, which used electric heating and artificially controlled carbon dioxide uh, throughout the year, and only used industrial centers located beyond the Ar- Arctic Circle. Finally, citrus trees were grown throughout Soviet Union pots and boxes and the way people you know, grow stuff in their home. Few of these methods would have been profitable under the free trade regime. Considerable research investment went into kickstarting domestic citrus production. Although most methods did not require fossil fuels and were possible 
possible using cheap and locally available material, they were very labor-intensive. Domestic citrus production was only possible because it was sheltered, not only from frost, but from foreign competition, too. Something to keep in mind if, uh, you know, global trade breaks down at all, or we make it our policy to, it's not a matter of cutting off transportation, trade, all trade, but the amount of shipping in and out that makes our economy run, but is not actually necessary. Also included is a map of all the areas that could be used for uh, growing citrus stuff. So not only around the Black Sea, but uh, all along a similar line in Turk and Uzbekistan. Interesting. That's very dry areas. The last piece I will cover from Low Tech is a bit closer to home, no longer about food production. It's actually about other areas of um, the service economy. You know, it's, we're, hey, okay, all this production talk, you know, production of food, production of whatever, energy, uh, they'll all be in the past. We'll have an, a service economy. Obviously, um, selling yoga and services and, and, and massage and lifestyle stuff, that is much less labor-intensive, labor uh, rather much lower carbon footprint than whatever, um, uh, making stuff, especially overseas and shipping it here. And what of healthcare? So here's something not usually talked about, sustainability and healthcare. The article is called, How Sustainable is High-Tech Healthcare? You know, what usually makes healthcare really good is to have really expensive equipment, to have really nice hospitals, and all kinds of other things. But here and then there lies a question. How can we make modern healthcare carbon neutral and maintain the levels of care, pain relief, longevity that we have come to take for granted? First, let's take a look at the environmental footprint of the healthcare sector. Healthcare is one of the most important economic sectors in high-income countries, but its environmental footprint is underreported and not often considered. Most research in sustainable healthcare is less than five years old. In 2019, research paper calculated that the sector accounts for 2 to 10%, it's quite a margin, of the national carbon footprint across developed countries, the global north, which include China and India with the average share of 5 The data referred to the year 2014 when the healthcare sectors of all of these 36 countries combined were responsible for 1.6 gigatons of greenhouse gas emissions. This corresponds to about 4.4% of global total emissions, almost double the share of aviation. The U.S. has the most carbon-intensive healthcare system, accounting for up to 10% of the national emissions. It also produces 9% of national air pollution, 12% of acid rain, 10% of smog. So it's not like all of it, but it's like a tenth of it. (laughs) So it's part of it. It's part of it. The environmental footprint of healthcare keeps increasing. For example, in the U.S., the healthcare sector's greenhouse gas emissions grew 30% between 03 and 013. The rise in emissions couples an increase in spending. It's coupled with it. In fact, the emissions are often calculated based on spending. U.S. national health expenditure as percentage of GDP increased from 3 
in 1930 to 5% in 1960 to 10% in 1983, 15% in 2002, 17.7% in 2019. In the EU, healthcare spending per capita more than doubled between 2000 and 2018. Total spending is now at about 10% of all economic activity. So it makes sense. It's a tenth of the pollution because it's a tenth of the economy. So we shouldn't leave it out of our conversations. The 36 countries whose healthcare systems together cause about 5% of global emissions only have about half of the population of the world. The remaining 46% of the population produces little or no healthcare-related emissions because, well, they don't have access to it, for one. If we were to extend uh, the Global North, China, India healthcare system globally, emissions would double to about 8% of the worldwide total. Furthermore, there are very large differences between the all of the different 36 countries looked at. If the whole world were to copy the U.S. healthcare system, I don't think they plan on doing that uh, with any luck, the global carbon footprint of the healthcare sector would amount to about 16 gigatons. It's almost half of the total emissions worldwide back in 2014. So what is the source of this? Well, intense spotlights, high-powered medical equipment. What makes modern healthcare so resource-intensive? To start with, modern hospitals are high-energy users, primarily because of the large plug loads for medical devising, lighting, ventilation, air conditioning. In operating rooms, the high power use is mainly due to the use of intense spotlights and ultra-clean ventilation canopies. In intensive care units and diagnostic imaging departments, medical equipment dominates the power load. Ventilators. Like so many other sectors in modern society, healthcare has come to rely on all types of machines. Some of this medical equipment is very high power use. For example, an MRI scanner, one of the most powerful diagnostic imaging technologies, can use as much electricity as more than 70 average households. European ones. A 2020 study calculated that high-tech medical diagnostic technology, like MMR and CT scans, was responsible for a whopping... 0.77% of global emissions. So it's like 1% of all emissions uh, in 2016 just came from those two machines. The power use of smaller medical equipment is poorly researched, but the inventory of two U.S. hospitals showed that they had 14, about 14, about 15,000 and 7,000 energy using devices, of which the infusion pumps alone consume more electricity on aggregate than the MRI scanner. The high density of medical equipment also increases the electricity use of the air conditioning, you know, because they're all putting out heat, and then you have to counter that. So resource use. there's also the resource use along the supply chain itself. Even more energy, around 60% of the total, is used indirectly along the supply chain. This concerns the procurement, the pharmaceuticals. To start with, the growing number of medical devices used in hospitals also needs to be manufactured and brought to market. This requires activities such as mining, construction, operations, labs, factories, transportation. This embodied energy of the medical equipment supply chain is very poorly researched. A study calculated that the production of an MRI scanner requires more than half the fossil fuels used in the production of a passenger jet 
and that the embodied energy is one-third of the total energy use, use of the machine. Modern healthcare is also highly dependent on pharmaceuticals, which account for between 10 to 25% of total healthcare emissions, depending on the country, of course. A 2019 study revealed that the global pharmaceutical industry produces more greenhouse gases than the car industry. Think about that. However, there is almost no data about the environmental footprint of specific pharmaceuticals themselves because, well, corporate secrecy prevents any looking at it, looking at what its life cycle is. Uh, and then there's various pictures of the various kind of things like um, gloves and face mask production. Single-use disposable products are another source of healthcare energy use and pollution. These products are worn by medical personnel and patients, and well, now a lot of everyone else. Towels, basins, sterile, plastic packaging, plastic lot, a lot of plastics. These disposable products are supplied to hospitals in so-called custom packs, which are sets of prepackaged sterile products for any specific medical procedure you can imagine. In principle, once a pack is opened, all items are discarded, even if they're not all used. When these practices are questioned, it is often for the hospital waste they create. The average patient in a hospital produces about 10 kilograms of waste per day. However, the environmental footprint increases significantly if the embodied energy and waste in the supply chain for making these products is considered too. A study of cataract surgery in the UK, cataracts being the main cause of blindness, shows that the manufacturing of disposable materials accounts for more than half of the total footprint of the procedure. And a, little, a few paragraphs about anesthetics and vaccines, dose inhalers, carbon footprint of various procedures. We can look at that. There's also, um, but here, what if we just make everything more efficient, less wasteful? Well, there are limits to this. Obviously, why haven't any of this been done already? I mean, a lot of this stuff is necessary to an extent. Although data on its environmental footprint is still incomplete, it seems quite clear that modern healthcare is not compatible with a transition to a low-carbon society. The big question is whether or not this can be fixed without lowering the levels of care, pain relief, and longevity that we have grown accustomed to and prefer. <laughs> Many efforts and studies in the healthcare sustainability aim to reduce energy use and emissions without affecting the quality of the treatments often explicitly so. For example, the authors of a 2020 study into the Austrian healthcare system write that it's, quoting them, crucial to understand how the healthcare sector can reduce its emissions without undermining its quality. Elsewhere, researchers write that any solution that would reduce impact while reducing performance at the same time cannot be deployed. No one would accept it, right? As a consequence, many researchers tend to focus on improving carbon and energy efficiency. These strategies aim to deliver the same performance or service quality, but with less energy, thanks to more efficient equipment or le uh, less emissions, uh, owing to maybe a renewable energy source. The problem is that the quality of medical treatments continues to improve, resulting in extra energy use that erases the savings that result from carbon or any other efficiency. For example, and this is something that I covered in past uh degrowth episodes that you know we can make things more efficient but that just frees up more energy to go to other things we use the same amount if not more energy the more efficient you make things for example 
unless you like put a cap on how much you're going to use. And that's kind of what needs to happen. It's like, okay, the hospital has a energy budget and the efficiencies are meant to meet the budget. For example, in 2012, researchers calculated that the MRI scanners could be made about 10 to 20% more energy efficient with relatively simple changes in its design. Some of their proposed changes are now in use, but the energy use of MRI scanners have not decreased. They've increased. And this could be seen across any example about energy efficiency. Without a cap, it's just going to like, it's just a hole. A first reason is that MRI scanners are now, they now come with higher field strengths, which offer higher accuracy, and with larger boreholes, which improve patient comfort and allow obese and very muscular patients to go in. These innovations uh, have improved the quality of care, but they have done so at the expense of extra energy use. In the 2012 study, the average power consumption per scan before the energy improvements uh, was 15 kilowatts. You don't have to go through all the numbers. So what counts as sufficient health care? Because maybe that's the greater question here. Because we could add more renewable energy sources, uh, which could potentially lower emissions of healthcare both on-site and throughout the supply chain. But as the energy use of medical treatments continues to increase, this outcome is unlikely. Besides, a quick calculation shows that even without further growth in energy use, a carbon-neutral U.S. healthcare system would gobble up the entire U.S. renewable energy production. That's all of it. The challenge is only slightly smaller in other high-income countries. Finally, renewable energy would not solve all of the healthcare sector's damage and would not even eliminate its emissions. Just lower them. So what qualifies? So maybe there's a bigger question here we can ask. What is sufficient health care? To reduce the environmental, you know, and this goes to greater questions of what is a sufficient economy? What is a sufficient society? When talking about self-sufficiency and other things like that. To reduce the environmental footprint of modern health care, we need to question the trend towards an ever greater reliance on energy-intensive tax and services. Same holds true in all other domains of life. However, while some people see the charm and real advantages of frugal and past ways of living when it comes to comfort or convenience, few would be tempted to apply the same principles to health and longevity. After all, the healthcare equivalent of traveling more slowly or wearing an extra sweater at home may be living a shorter life, suffering more pain, being less mobile in old age. For example, if we would stop using MRI scanners, or only use those with a field strength up to uh, 1.5 Tesla, the lower diagnostic accuracy would lead to some cancers not being detected, resulting in lower cancer survival rates and a lower average life expectancy. At least so it seems. And it includes some paintings, old um, Renaissance paintings of surgeons at work. <laughs> Traditional European healthcare. If healthcare is viewed in a historical context, it seems clear that there is a powerful connection between the use of energy-efficient, intensive tech on the one hand and the health and longevity of a population on the other. Even looking back less than a century shows much lower healthcare outcomes and survival rates for all kinds of diseases, and today's global average life expectancy of about 72 and a half years is higher than in any high-income country back in 1950. Hospitals date back to antiquity, but they were merely welcomed by those gone mad or awaiting death. They just welcomed those. They weren't really for treating the sick. 
In the Middle Ages, surgery happened at the barber shop, where barber surgeons offered bloodletting, tooth extractions, and amputations, along with the more usual haircuts. They brew their own anesthetics based on herbs and alcohol, which could be just as deadly as the treatment. A look at the developing world today also seems to suggest a clear connection between healthcare emissions, which are very modest, and increased life expectancy. However, if one digs deeper, the connection between energy use and longevity is not as strong as it seems. This is proven by the U.S., which has the most expensive and unsustainable healthcare system, but ranks behind Europeans, which is mentioned over and over again when talking about single-payer healthcare uh, and uh, getting rid of health insurance at the very least. Resistance to disease. To start with, the quality of healthcare system is not the only determinant of health and longevity. Here's where history does have an important lesson to teach us. Medical knowledge dating back to antiquity viewed health in a more holistic way and placed great emphasis on building up one's body's inherent resistance. For example, Hippocrates, often referred to as the father of Western medicine, prescribed diet, gymnastics, exercise, massage, hydrotherapy, and swimming. One could argue that our forebearers had no other choice than to focus on preventing disease because they had few treatments available. However, the wisdom of their approach is more obvious than ever. Nowadays, in high-income societies, many patients need medical treatment because of so-called lifestyle diseases. Those caused by poor nutrition, lack of physical activity, overall stress, and other medical conditions and mental health all can be traced to capitalist alienation and labor exploitation and whatnot. You know, you're stressed out because we're not financially secure, you know, you you have to work 50 hours a week, you know, th- this is bad for our health. Typical health risks are cardiovascular disease, diabetes, obesity, t- cancers. You know, maybe we'd have less cancers if we were, you know, if our su- supply chain wasn't poisoning us. It's corporate America that puts out all the car- carcinogens, not always on purpose, but they don't look into what the effects of their products are. Will it poison someone in, 20, in 10, 20 years? This means, or, or when they do, they fight like hell to make sure they don't have to pay anyone for it or clean up their mess. But this means that health and longevity can be promoted in other ways that through increasing resource-intensive healthcare system. By increasing the broader determinants of health and longevity, we could make a switch from curative to preventative medicine, which is kind of said over and over again also in healthcare debates. Look, look, we don't have to go to single-payer healthcare. We just need to focus on preventative medicine, and then we can reduce our spending uh, or reduce the costs of healthcare. You know, we don't have to change how we spend about healthcare, which, of course, makes it cheaper because you take the profit motive out. So you could do both. <laughs> you could do both. Preventative medicine is not about the government telling us not to smoke and then cashing in on tax money uh, on sale of cigarettes. Rather, it concerns systemic changes that go beyond the behavioral. For example, simply reducing the use of cars in our society would bring a surprisingly large number of health benefits. What others? Finally, reducing use of cars. So let's see, switching to healthier foods, uh, shorter work hours, more meaningful jobs are examples of preventative medicine. We have not achieved a higher life expectancy of today only because of better health care systems. We also got it because of better education, sanitation, safety, traffic, regs, welfare systems, crime control, more reliable food supplies. The low average life expectancy of poor countries is partly due to these factors. Also, healthcare is driven by profit in America. So there's a lot more points here. 
age of sustainability. Based on the fragmented data available, it seems likely that the resource use of modern healthcare systems could be reduced significantly without bringing us back to barber surgeons of the Middle Ages. Healthcare system that is more focused on preventative medicine, of which operates outside the logic of the market, could reduce emissions without negatively impacting it. Thus, you know, anti-market. Oh, what kind of what kind of politics go along with getting things outside the logic of the market? Hmm. Whether it be housing, healthcare, schools. Otherwise, the law of diminishing returns highlights opportunities to lower the environmental footprint of healthcare service. For example, if the environmental footprint of healthcare were halved, it's very unlikely that life expectancy would decrease proportionally. Nearly half of lifetime healthcare expenditures, and thus energy use and emissions, are incurred during senior years. For those of age 85 more or more, one-third of their lifetime expenditure will accrue. Advocating for a shorter average life expectancy, even if it may concern a very modest decrease, sounds problematic. It certainly does. However, avoiding the topic is not is just as problematic. Because of modern healthcare's enormous and still growing environmental footprint, today's health and longevity comes at least partially at the expense of the health and longevity of younger and future generations that have no voice in this debate. If we cure one person today at the expense of making others sick tomorrow, healthcare becomes counterproductive. Health is not only a private good, but a public one. And as medical treatments become increasingly resource-intensive, the chances grow that the public health damage of a treatment outweighs the individual gain of a patient, especially at old age. Of course, you know, oh, you got to say no to your grandma? <laughs> that's, that's, that's where it's private. So this could be spun as being eugenicist or something like let the old die or something, but that's what conservatives argue for. That's what Republicans argue for when, when, when we're being anti-single payer, you know, death panels. So yeah, the poor old people die sooner because they don't get any care. Okay. This has been the three left show. I have been your host, Dan Platt. Thank you for listening. First, my profound thanks for listening, which is a skill as important as talking. So I plan to listen to any constructive feedback, ideas for the show, stories, topics, or rantings you message on Facebook, Twitter at 3 Left Show. You can also email at 3 Left Show at Gmail. This program is made as a part of independent community radio. So support us materially, along with other producers and citizen journalists, with a donation or membership to WCAALP at Grand arts.org. Capitalism doesn't value this work, so to support myself personally, become a member of my Patreon, which is also at 3 Left Show. Support the show with your time by telling others you believe would be interested, liking and sharing and checking in on our social media pages, as word of mouth is our best advertising. This episode and the last 10 are broadcast on most podcasting apps, like Stitcher, Apple Store, and Google Play, but a full archive of the podcast, along with links, sources, and notes, are found at 3lefts.news. Of course, the most important thing is to put the ideas, thinking, and projects talked about here in practice yourself. So be well, keep it rad, and keep waving the flags of the 3 lefts.